Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast featuring me, Mike Calvin, Richard Amofa of The Athletic, and Paul Haywood the author and columnist. Liverpool are, by common consent, Manchester City's closest challengers. They have an inspirational manager, iconic players, and an innovative strategy based on the application of science. Their owners, the Fenway Sports Group, are valued at around $7.5 billion. Yet the factors that prompted SSG to support the Super League are more pronounced than ever. Now, Paul, this might sound ridiculous, but as we look forward from this age of state-funded clubs, is Liverpool's combination of assets, both human and financial, going to be enough to win the biggest prizes? Well, I think they are slightly clinging on to that equality they've had with Manchester City over the past few seasons. They're starting to push their luck a bit now in the sense that they're heavily reliant on Jurgen Klopp's genius as a manager and they're heavily dependent still on the excellent transfer dealings of the last five years, you know, the star acquisitions they've made. Those players are still there. A couple of them might not be soon. And they're, they're, they are at a bit of a crossroads, really, because it comes back to the ownership. The FSG, when they sit around a dinner table in Boston, do they say to themselves... We can't compete financially with Manchester City and Chelsea, or do they say we don't want to compete with them? In other words, our business is too big and broad for us to devote all our resources to um, this arms race with City and Chelsea. And if they choose not to compete with £100 million transfers, then it becomes a question of finding a formula, a different, cleverer formula beyond money that allows them to maintain parity with those two huge clubs, two rivals. And obviously, I think they know that they've got a fabulous front-of-house leader asset in Jurgen Klopp. And at the moment, they're, they're relying on him, I think, to get them through any, any kind of short-term turbulence. Do you think, Richard, that they've, they've overlooked the need to strengthen in the transfer market over the last couple of seasons? And if so, a couple of questions, really. Is that partly a cultural issue because player movement in is much more structured in North American sport, which obviously is FSG's, you know, key area of excellence and expertise and experience. But also, are we looking here at their need to really invest? And does that highlight then the significance of losing 
Michael Edwards at the end of this season as their sporting director? I think that's a really good question. You know, when you look at the long-term planning over the years, you know, you have to say Michael Edwards has done a great job, not just with, with player sales, but with overhauling a squad, which was quite mediocre to, to one that's winning leagues, Champions Leagues and challenging for the title. And even after that, you can see they've made quite key strategic signings. You know, the likes of Kanate, the likes of Diogo Jota, the likes of, of Naby Keita, obviously injuries are probably a mitigating factor there, as there has been with, with Thiago. You know, when he first joined, I thought that was a fantastic signing and he's been unlucky with, with injuries as well. And then supplementing that with, with really good and exciting academy prospects. You know, the likes of, of Harvey Elliott, Curtis Jones, top quality young players who are already making an impact at, at the top level. But where I think there is an oversight is especially, you know, in the centre forward position. We, we know what Firmino brings to the team. But in terms of his goal output, it's not that high. So, you know, if Salah's not scoring, if Mane's not scoring, then, then you're looking at, at where the goal's coming from. And and also in, in midfield too, I've mentioned the likes of Keita and Thiago, but not really replacing Ronaldo. An oversight now in terms of someone who was such a mainstay in that team, who I think he was never present last season, to not replace him and his energy and his industry... I think it's been been a bit of an oversight. Now you talk about Super League and, and the factors which which made you know FSG want to support it. Of course, you can see the reasons why. It's a closed shop. There's no relegation. It's guaranteed income opportunities for income to even to even grow even more than what it is now. So you can see the reasons why why they wanted to do that. And also, if you're looking long term, we we know Michael Edwards is going to be a, a big loss for the work he's done. The Julian Ward assuming a position, you know, someone who's been at the club. Um, but he has got a, a big job on his hands in terms of, you know, are, are Liverpool about to come to, to a cliff edge? You know, with, with Klopp leaving, with certain players' contracts coming to the end, he, he's got a big job to to take Liverpool to, to that next level, you know, in terms of new manager, maybe, you know, overseeing the academy prospects, and, and and getting new signings in him, those positions where where they are just a bit short of of their of their main rivals, Manchester City, and and Chelsea. Mm. You know, we know Liverpool is a club that has emotional attachment to their you know dynastic managers. It goes right back to the days of the boot room, doesn't it, Paul? You know, you know Sir Alex Ferguson well. Does the example of the, the vacuum created by his departure from Manchester United hint at some sort of danger to Liverpool when, as is inevitable, Jurgen Klopp eventually goes? It could even be in you know, 2024. Possibly. It's a, it's a much longer period we were talking about with um, Sir Alex Ferguson. Obviously, he, he was Manchester United. He, did, he just defined the club, didn't he, for, for two decades Klopp's impact was to to save uh, Liverpool in a way from a period of kind of undulating form and fortunes. They they they'd slipped away, but he put them back on the pinnacle first league title since what was it, uh, nineteen ninety? Was it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Champions League winners again? So so the, the 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 Renaissance and the Revolution is 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 clear to all, and it was based on a top manager and some some brilliant transfer dealings and a foresight about structure, restructuring the club and the, and the recruitment and so on. 
But when he goes, as he will go, does the club now have the foundations to maintain the success that he's achieved over the last five years, a few years possibly? But it, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bank on it because that top six area is 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 so competitive. You know, there's no divine right to finish in the in the top three, and they have to start thinking beyond Klopp, obviously, on some level. But I do think that they need to also get back into the market and try to strengthen what is a, a very good team. The, to me, the, the, the area where they've really pushed their luck for a, an awful long time is in midfield. It's remarkable if you compare their midfield resources to those of Chelsea and Manchester City. Liverpool have far fewer options. They're asking far more of the midfield players that they have. And, and, and they need to get in there and, 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 and strengthen the two players I would go for if I were in a dream world and owned Liverpool FC would be uh, Tielemans and Bellingham. Those are the two sorts of players, particularly Bellingham. I think they would just they would move Liverpool on to the next stage. Yeah, I think uh, clubs will be queuing around the block to try and get hold of Bellingham as early as this summer. You know, going back to what you said about you know that front three, Rich, Mo Salah, would you pay him what he's asking? I think I think you have to. I think you have a player there who, you know, he's, he's at the peak of his powers. He's the best player in arguably the best league in the world, and he is proving his worth time and time again. And you do see it when he's not there, and it highlights that even more. So it would probably cost Liverpool more to replace him at this moment in time than to just give him what he wants. And and the thing about Salah as well is that. He, okay, he's, he's approaching his thirties, of course, but you know he's he's in great condition. It's a great culture at Liverpool in terms of how they condition their players and 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 maintain that kind of physical capacity. And can see Salah maintaining his level for at least the next four five years. And he has a technical ability as well that even if he was to lose his pace at some point, he could even alter his position and play in the middle or, or behind the striker. So you have a long term value there. And as I say, it would probably cost more to replace such a talent than to just give him what he wants. He's happy there. His clubs are happy with him. So it just seems like a no-brainer, really. Yeah. If you think more immediately, Paul, you know, following Thursday night's League Cup semi-final, they're at uh, Crystal Palace in the Premier League on Sunday. Now, one Premier League title bid blew up at Selhurst in 2014. Inevitably... You know, prompts the thought, will another one blow up on Sunday? But I suppose, really, realistically, how many league games do you think Liverpool can afford to lose for the rest of the season? Well, I'm going to start with none and go from there, I think, because they're, <laughs> they're 11 points behind at the moment. And it's not just the points gap, it's the sense that Man City look unstoppable. You know, they've... they've They've always been clear in their identity under Guardiola, but they just at the moment they just seem they seem intent on just crushing everybody. They they uh, they there's there's no doubt in the mind of that team. They go out there and treat every opponent the same way and and dispatch them with this kind of coldness, you know, and confidence. And so to imagine Liverpool getting back at Man City, you have to imagine Man City faltering at some point over the next few months. And I personally can't quite see that, although. It's always it's always daft, really, to look at 
we we learn this lesson again and again. If you look at football as it is on any given day, you you deny its you know its potential to be different in a week's time or two weeks' time. And teams hit bad runs, things go wrong, don't they? We've seen that again and again. But it, they'd have to go spectacularly wrong for City and phenomenally right for Liverpool for there to be any change in the current order. Certainly. Now you know we look across the city of Liverpool, Rich. We see that it's not as simple in modern football as throwing money blindly at a problem. Everton, they've got um, big dunk, uh, caretaker manager again. So much for their hopes of a quick appointment. Yeah, I mean, uh, 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 Martinez was, was obviously muted and, and, and they, they failed in, in that pursuit. As, as, as has been documented by, by a lot of people now, you have to question the strategy there. I mean, you know, 500 million spent by, by Fahad Mashiri, five managers now, two directors of football. When when Marcel Brands came in, I should say, it, things did start to look up in terms of you could see the kind of philosophy and what he was trying to do there. But as his influence waned, things started to go away again. Look, Duncan Ferguson, he had a galvanising impact the last time he, he was at the helm. Everton could obviously do with that again, but they, they need more than that. They need a, a sense of direction. They need a sense of strategy. You know, they have too many players there who bought by different managers, different different mentalities, different different motivations, and it's going to take a, a bit really big clear out. So so maybe it's probably a, a blessing in disguise that they haven't maybe appointed too quickly. Hopefully this time for them they're being more strategic in their planning, and hopefully for them the next manager will have a more long term plan in place to to really overhaul the squad and you know, especially if they're moving into a new stadium in a couple of years you know, they, they want to be competing at a decent level at that time so so it gives them a couple of years now to, to regroup hopefully rebuild from their perspective and, and and go again but I mean at the moment it's it's a bit of a mess yeah do you think Paul that you know, there's a danger of, of over sentimentality here again we look at the theory that a manager must know the club. Well, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer probably blew that one out of the water. Wayne Rooney inevitably is being mentioned. He's done a fantastic job in chaotic circumstances at Derby. But is he really no more than an impressive novice? I think he is a, an impressive novice. I remember a, a few years ago when he was at Manchester United, a few of us were invited to lunch with Wayne Rooney and he was um, what struck me about that was talking to him about his his desire to become a manager when he stopped playing both kind of took us by surprise because I don't think anybody really expected it but it was also noticeable how serious he was about it and how much he thought it through and Alec Ferguson always used to say he was a, he was a very serious student of the game you know he didn't always appear that way but actually he was always computing and noticing things and making mental notes a bit like Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville did and so went into management after he retired at, at Derby it didn't really take me by surprise I knew you know I had the sense of it being a, a long-term plan and obviously by consent he's he's an impossible job at Derby if you want to you know if you want a kind of a trial of fire in your first managerial job you go to a, a club in the mess that Derby County are in and, and you know everybody accepts that he's done a really good job now then the question becomes can he kind of trampoline from Derby County into Goodison Park and solve all the um, structural and cultural problems that have led them to the point where they are. 
I think it would be. I think he would do a, a a decent job. But is it the right thing to do at this point for him? Almost certainly not, because I I I refuse to believe that he could solve the problems they have on his own. You know, in a, in the in the six or nine or twelve months he'd probably be given. Yeah, if you're looking at other candidates for for the job, Richard Frank Lampard has been put forward. Will the fan base accept someone like him, who is a sort of traditional tribal bogeyman, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, I think especially after uh, the Benitez appointment, it, it probably would, would would be the wrong <laughs> way to, to to go down. Just say uh, other names are have, have been muted. You know, Sean Dyche. You know, is is there is there potential for him? I mean, obviously he signed a new deal at, at Burnley only a few months ago. It, it's it's a really difficult one because you just. Because we don't, we, we can't see the strategy. We can't see where they're going. I think sometimes with clubs, when when there is a managerial change, you can see, you know, the the processes they have in place. You know, for example, Villa. You can see where they want to go. So certain names kind of fit the mold there, and you can see that the the general final process there. But in in this situation, it, it could be anyone. But as as Paul as Paul said, you know, the next appointment has to has a massive job on their hands to, to solve all the structural issues and, and personality issues that, that are there at the club at the moment. And um, it's, it's going to take a, a really big experienced manager, but also support around him as well. You know, if they're looking for the director football model as well, they'll need to get good people in place in the right positions to, to really make a good impact. Yeah, I suppose if we're looking for an object lesson in how to develop a secondary career in coaching or management, you know, we, we shouldn't really look too much further than Steven Gerrard, an academy apprenticeship. Then he had a big club in basically what was a two-club league, now a Premier League club with ambition and, you know, financial reserves. How impressed have you been by Steven Gerrard? And do you share my sense that he's just getting hold of the club and the club are responding to his arrival with renewed ambition? Yes, definitely. It, it, it's exactly what Aston Villa needed, really. A manager with energy, purpose, strength of character, ambition, and a, and a sort of and an imprint. I watch Aston Villa, and they're already an expression of um, Steven Gerrard's character, really. You know, you used to see that in the old days, where the team would resemble resemble the manager a bit like dogs and their owners you know um, <laughs> um and and just occasionally in football you, nowadays you, you see it again uh, and and Steven Gerrard his influence is already apparent ac- across the team with its mentality with his style of play his kind of honesty you know he comes on after games and says well that wasn't good enough and we shouldn't be complacent the defending wasn't right he do- just he doesn't spare anybody's feelings he's a very direct individual but he, and he has a vision, I think, of, of, of what he's trying to do and his experiences. We're talking about, you know, forged in the fire, as Wayne Rooney has been at Derby County. Well, my God, the same is true of, of managing Rangers, isn't it? You know, if you can do that, you can, uh, as an apprenticeship, you can pretty much do anything. But as you said, Mike, he, he did do other work before that. So he's on, a, he's on a fast track, there's no doubt about that. And fast tracks can come sometimes, you know, end badly, but... Everything he's done so far suggests that Aston Villa were completely right to think that they he would be a really good long-term bet to change the club fundamentally. Yeah, you've got some talk about Luis Suarez maybe following Philippe Coutinho 
into Villa. Have we got an Anfield reunion on our, on our hands here, Rich? <laughs> it would be some some coup, wouldn't it? I mean, unlikely, of course. But I mean, if there was a little Anfield reunion, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure the fans would be behind it because it would, it would show that the, you know the club's going in, in a new direction, and so it would be be great for the fans, be great for the club if they were to make such a signing. And as you say, he would fit he would fit the Gerard mould in terms of having that you know great mentality, ambition, etc. So yeah, I mean, what a signing it would be. I can't see it happening, but. Uh, I mean, imagine if it did, it'd be great. It'd be great for them. I must admit, I'd love it. Absolutely love it. <laughs> um, you know, when you when you think about it, Paul, you know, the fixture list is sometimes quite karmic, isn't it? You know, on Saturday in the Saturday lunchtime BT Sport game, you've got Villa going to Goodison, which means that Lucas Dina, who bewilderingly was sold in the in the dying embers of. Um, uh, Rafa Benitez's regime are going back to his old club Everton. That's just a symbol, isn't it, of of Everton's confusion and wastefulness? Yes, it is. I mean, you, so you give Rafa Benitez autonomy at Everton. You clear all the obstacles out of his path. Uh, he uses that autonomy to fall out with a very good fullback, who then gets sold to Aston Villa. Then you sack Benitez, and then the very good fullback comes back to haunt you. A few days later, I mean that's a that's a hell, that's the circle of life right there, and um, it also reflects quite badly on Rafa Benitez, I think, in many ways because he's still perhaps stuck in an era where you where you could and would fall out with players like that and take them on and win a power struggle with them, and really in this case it was to Everton's cost, you know, because that there's a player that should still be at the club. He's certainly good enough to play for for them. And yes, it's 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 a very good symbol of of the confusion at Everton and the confusion that the new manager is going to inherit. Yeah. Now it, it seemed unlikely that, that Graham Potter's gonna be that new manager. You know, as usual, he was linked to the job. What about him, Richard? What's your view of him? He he does seem one to make players better. You look at Trossard, for instance, and he can translate training ground theory into action. You look at that goal that uh, Webster scored against Chelsea. He will keep getting linked to the biggest jobs, won't he? He will do, yes. And it's it's credit to him. He's seen as, as a great compliment, but it's, it's testament to the great work he's he's doing there at, at the club. As you've mentioned, he's, he's made a number of players better on his watch. You mentioned Trossard, the likes of Dan Byrne is, is another one who just comes to mind simply just because... You know, under Hewton, you're looking at someone who's maybe a bit of an average defender, but she's quite tall and fills a void. But there's just someone who you slotted in, in in different positions. I mean, when have you ever seen a six foot seven defender playing at that fullback? Is and 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 still impacting the game in a positive way. Yeah, he's done he's done a great job, and as you mentioned, you can really see his imprint in in, in any eleven. And I think that's just another good coach. You know, when like of course you know they may may need more cutting edge up front, but when players are missing, their style of play does not change. He's flexible. He's able to 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 change things in games and, and not lose that cohesion. Uh, so he, he's done a fantastic job. And I think when you're looking at you know the top clubs are looking for for for, for managers and coaches to have their imprint. Now he's he's one to 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 really go for. And again, it's great testament to, to Bryson. To run, we're a fantastically run club, as, as Paul I'm sure will attest to. And the culture there just seems something a place of. You know, great progression, great, you know, infrastructure, great, you know, in terms of investment in their facilities. You can really see as a club which are trying to to really develop 
all across the all across the board you know you're looking at women's team for example as well so you know put at, at the kind of tip of that of that of that iceberg i think he's, he's done a great job and are they resigned to losing him probably but he will leave them in a much better place than, than he found them yeah well paul it is a club that you know well you know what's the view of the fan base about the continual interest in their manager <laughs> nervous in a word, uh, and it, you know, it, it obviously comes up with um, great regularity in the sacking culture of the Premier League. And every time it happens, Brighton fans get twitchy. They, they, I think they rationalise it now by saying, or trying to convince themselves that they, they, there is no better club outside of the top six, or no better job, I should say, that Graham Potter might be tempted by, because you know he's got pound for pound the best combination of people around him and Paul Barber, Tony Bloom, the owner, and Dan Ashworth, who's still director of football. So, you know, a, a manager would have to have a very, very good reason to leave that setup when he's already getting plaudits and the team is improving and they're moving up the league and everybody's admiring him. So, you know, why on earth would he, would he give all that up to go to a troubled club, an Everton, for example? The risk is that he gets so good and so admired that one of the one of the big really big clubs comes for him and he finds it impossible to turn down but he's he's obviously as we know managers have to time this right you know if they go too soon they they can burn if they go too late they can stop making progress and everybody says oh he's gone off the boil so it's all about timing isn't it but if in the future you know arsenal or somebody came for him that would be the test but i think for now it would be there's no need for him to leave Brighton, where his coaching is remarkable, as as Richard said, you know they the the the, the fluency of their attacking play, their approach play, the, the finishing isn't good enough at the moment. There's no question about that. But the defending and the and the approach play, the fluency of their football is really striking. And I bet there are some seriously good coaches around the world looking at Brighton, thinking, how the hell does he do that? You know, and and a lot of them probably want to get onto the training ground down here in Sussex to see what it is that Graham Potter's doing to get this team to play so so fluidly. Do you think he'd be a viable candidate for Manchester United? I do, yeah, I do. Again, uh, the one of the questions is always, and we trot this question out, yeah, but could he handle the big players, you know, the, the £50 million players, the big personalities, the egos, the cliques? Well, nobody really knows until it, until, it, until it happens. But anybody who didn't respect Graham Potter and didn't feel they could learn from him and work with him would, would have a problem. So it would be on the £50 million, £80 million players to, to consider themselves lucky to have him, really. I, I definitely think... I certainly think he'll be England manager one day. Well, yeah, Manchester United under the temporary husbandry of Ralph Rangnick, there's always a sense... Rich, I don't know if you'd share it, that he's busy papering over some cracks. What about Cristiano Ronaldo? You know, frankly, that was an embarrassing hissy fit at Brentford on Wednesday night. Or am I being unfair? And was it just another sign of him as a perfectionist? Discuss. <laughs> well, I mean, we all know what Ronaldo is in terms of his mentality and being a winner, but... I think when you have that kind of seniority in, in the squad, you know, you need to, to set the tone and, and set the example. Now, we've seen him do that in a number of positive ways. I mean, obviously, there was a story about Apple Crumble and all of that stuff and his approach to training, of course, which has, you know, obviously improved 
But as you say, that is that kind of whole attitude, that whole demeanour. And there was, I don't know if you've seen the the picture when he comes off, and Mason Greenwood is almost looking at him as if to say, "Well, is is that how big players act? Is that you know, is that is that the way the way to behave?" And in those kind of you know, young players are, are sponges, and they, they do take that in. And we're already talking of, of um, you know, there's clicks in the dressing room and and, and mutiny and, and, and unhappiness there. And, you know, you do need to show that United front. And he, he's experienced enough to know that, you know, the, these things will get overblown and, 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 and talk, talked about as, as we are now. So, yeah, he, he's got to he's got to conduct himself better there, I feel. I mean, of course, no one wants to come off, especially in that time of the game. He wasn't playing well. Nothing was really coming off him, really, apart from the chess pass for United's second goal. But, yeah, it's, it's not the kind of uh, attitude you, you want to see, especially from your senior players. I thought it was interesting the awe with which Anthony Ilanga spoke about him afterwards in his interview with Des Kelly. Paul, I don't know, United are a really baffling team, aren't they? As good as they were in the second half of Brentford, they were awful in the first, in which, funnily enough, Brentford covered four and a half kilometres more ground. Yeah, that's a telling statistic. And it, and it, it just shows you that we can talk all we like about, you know, clever formations and and genius coaches, godfathers of gag and pressing and all the rest of it coming in to kind of solve things overnight. But it's, it's not just about tactical formations and, um, and theories. You know, it's about, it's about attitude and it's about commitment. It's about unity, all these human elements that we often ignore in this rush to just consider stats and formations all the time. So Ranić has hit the same problems that all the other Man United managers hit, which is that there's a culture problem in that squad. And until the players start to realise collectively and individually what it takes to get Manchester United back to the top of the league and start looking at Liverpool and Man City, you know, the players are actually setting the example, then it's all just, it's all just moving the deck chairs around, really. Uh, the Ronaldo thing was interesting to me because only a few days earlier, he'd, he'd given this quite welcome in many ways sermon about how the young players had to understand, you know, behaviour and demeanour and, and commitment and dedication and all the rest of it. And then a few days later... Uh, he throws a tantrum when he gets taken off for fairly sound tactical reasons. I mean, Ralph Rangnick did explain why he took him off. It was to make a tactical tweak in the side. So, unfortunately, Ronaldo, who's a fabulous player, and I, I admire him to the ends of the earth, but he, he, he set an example to the younger players that he would, a week earlier he'd said they shouldn't be following. So it was a bit bizarre. Mm. Manchester United, you know, you know, they are... They are fish in a pretty big goldfish bowl. I thought Ranić came across really well when he spoke about Jaden Sancho, Rich. You know, the precise quote was, he's playing for one of the biggest clubs in the world. This is psychologically, emotionally, much more challenging than Dortmund. I think a coach like that, you know, it's best to actually entrust the future of young players with someone like that, isn't it? Someone who understands, who's empathetic. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, as you say, em- empathy is, is the right term here. Having that holistic approach, because it's very easy to to look at, as you say, the stats, as Paul said, and, you know, the, the, how they're playing eye tests and things like that. But, you know, what, what's going on behind the scenes? Are we taking a holistic approach to these players? I mean, of course, look, they're in a lot, people say they're on a lot of money, they've been bought for a lot of money. They should come in and produce the goods, and of course you, you, you'd think so. But as I say he is in the likes of Sancho. He's a young player, of 
obviously you grew up in England, but has played uh, formative years in in Germany, and it's 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 a culture shock. I mean, when he first came, you know, he was even taken aback by by the pace of of the league and and how you know quick and strong other defenders are, and it's something that he he knows that he needs to improve on on his on his perspective as well. But as you say, if you've got a coach there who recognizes the the, the wider picture, the bigger picture, and takes the holistic approach. I think it will stem put the young players in a good stead in the long run. But as you say, you know, fans and, and journalists like you know want instant, instant success, instant gratification. And sometimes with young players, you, you you're not you're not going to get that all the time. Mm. You talk to people around Chelsea, and and they all make a point of mentioning how thoughtful Thomas Tuchel is in terms of you know, the way he. Well, one tries to get a better understanding of his players and the game itself, and obviously that's been recognised. You know, he's FIFA's male coach of the year. Now, Chelsea, one win in seven, Paul, but they have played fifteen games since the start of December. Do you accept Tuchel's explanation that his team are simply mentally and physically tired? I I, I do have always have sympathy with. Um with the complaints of clubs during periods of intense fixture congestion, and this is one of them. I'm not one of these people who says just get on with it, but I think the, there are people. I think there are very few people outside of Chelsea who would look at that squad and feel any sympathy for them at all. Particularly as he's a rotating manager, anyway, to some extent. You know, it, it's it's he has the resources and he has the skill to bring people in and take them out, and he has all the sports science measures to, to work out who's ready and who's not to play. So it was working fabulously for him last summer. They won the Champions League, and then they started this season like a train, and their form began to deteriorate or level off before this period of, of fixture congestion. So I think he's using it as a as a deflection from the fact that the team have, have lost their fluency and their conviction and their confidence. They just do not look the same team that they were, you know, in September, for example. And that goes deeper than fatigue. It, it may be the familiar Chelsea problem resurfacing, that a manager gets a, a honeymoon period, in this case quite a long honeymoon period, and then starts to encounter familiar problems inside the squad. Or it, or it may be that he has a, a number of individual problems that are all ganging up on him. I mean, in particular, you know, the whole Lukaku issue, I think, has been a has been a, a, a really bad distraction for them. And that should have been spotted if, if he didn't want Lukaku as much as people say he didn't, potentially didn't want him. And that should have been dealt with long before now. I felt, I mean, I personally think that uh, Chelsea under Drogba, and Diego Costa had a model of play that worked. I know the game's moved on and we, we and it's all about false nines now and so on and, and, and centre fours number nines aren't as fashionable as they once were. But nevertheless, I think that they could still have built the side around Lukaku, played through him, to him. He still looks like an isolated player now when he, when he, when he plays. And it just seems to me that the, the, the team now is, is unsettled and imbalanced and, and, and they're not... They're not they don't really know what they're doing anymore in the way that they did five months ago. And Tuchel's going to have to deal with that and put that right. Mm. You can see the cumulative strain in the in the body language of, of obviously Lukaku, but I thought that exchange with Ziyech was, was very significant the other night, Richard. It was quite interesting that, that Tuchel said he was very confident that he can complete his uh, current Chelsea contract, which is due to expire in 2024. That's pretty bold, given the club's re- ruthlessness, isn't it? <laughs> 
Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, I think even Tuchel acknowledged that when he first joined that he, he you know, I think the question was put to him and he, he, he did batter away quite well. I mean, look, he has got credit in the bank, of course, but as we know, Chelsea are very ruthless and when forms are start to deteriorate, especially with, with the investment in the squad and, and the size of the squad he's got, you know, the, the, the axe might start to wield. Although, as you say, I think the fact that he's... He he started off really really well, I should say. Maybe you know, in Tuchel's defence, you could say, you know, this run of games is a mitigating factor, tiredness, fatigue, etc. And when everybody's back fit and firing, things will be back to normal. I mean, obviously, he lost his uh, both of his fullbacks, who were very important to his play. Obviously, unsustainable. You can't have your fullback scoring, you know, a high percentage of goals. That's just not not right. But you know, he he would attest to the fact that if he has his full strength squad back. Chelsea will be firing again, but at the moment it's not looking good. As Paul said, the form was dipping before this run of games anyway. So it's up to him now to, to galvanise the squad and, and get them firing again. But um, yes, it's difficult, especially as you mentioned, the Lukaku situation, it's um, he's not looking too great. Yeah, Tottenham at the bridge on Sunday, Paul. Going in on the back of that most unlikely of wins at Leicester, Stephen Bergwijn, you know, Two bids from Ajax before the game, two goals in 80 seconds at the end of the game. They're bound to be bouncing after that, aren't they? Yeah, that was the sort of the ultimate Conte ecstasy, wasn't it? I mean, he's a he's a, obviously one of the top five or ten managers in um, Europe, but really his currency is passion, enthusiasm, commitment, um, you know, work rate, intensity, isn't it? And 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 he didn't have that at Spurs. Let's face it. You know, Spurs were a, a kind of strolling, slightly half-hearted team when he took over. And 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 the one thing you would back him to infuse into that team is is the kind of emotion that we saw last night at the end of that game. And and it was it was just pure distilled Antonio Conte that finish. And and <laughs> you know, with everybody going crackers at the end of the game. So uh, and then obviously the question becomes: Can he sustain it? Is that the template now for Spurs? Are they going to are they going to do teams in the in the eighty ninth minute every week from now on? You know, as they're going to be this kind of buccaneering spirit there, almost a kind of underdog mentality in relation to the, the top four teams. I I doubt whether it would last a whole season. Really, it's quite hard to maintain, particularly with that uh, group of players. But at least Conte for now is in his element. And at least Tottenham fans can feel that they've got a that, that they've got a team who are going out to to fight and win. Yeah, the you know when we talk about the Conte effect, okay, they've been unbeaten in nine Premier League games under him, Rich. You know, let's just look at this coldly, if we could. They're fifth at the moment. They win their four games in hand over over Chelsea. Now they're comfortably in third. This season's got a few twists and turns to go yet, hasn't it? It does, as, as you've uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, the games in hand and, and the kind of skewed uh, table that we have at the moment, you know, it does give teams an opportunity to, to gain ground. I mean, I'm always a fan of, you know, having points on the board. There's obviously no guarantee that they will obviously, you know, gain gain ground, of course. But it's that carrot to, to chase, isn't it? And as, as you've mentioned, if they do pick up wins in those games, they are in third and everyone will almost say, how have they done that? Because, you know, they, they started quite poorly. I mean, even under... A couple uh, barring last night, I think I'd probably look to the Liverpool game where they played quite well in that kind of Conte mould. But um, you know, the rest of them, I'd, I'd say they've, they've done okay. They they've plodded along, 
But, you know, if they do end up in, in third and are able to maintain it, then you'd have to turn around and say Conte has done excellently, from especially where they were when he took over. Um, it would be a fantastic achievement. But um, whether they can take, they can re- recoup those points is, is another story. I don't think they will, but uh, if they do, it would be fantastic for them. Mm. You know, typically, Conte, Paul, has been pummeling the Premier League over the postponements, which, you know, frankly, have been a bit of a farce, haven't they? Mm. Um, looks like the Premier League are going to change the rules next month. Uh, is that about time? Yes. <laughs> what started out as a perfectly reasonable idea became a sort of, as usual in the Premier League, it looks like you've had clubs trying to kind of snatch a yard, you know, and it's become a kind of competitive race, hasn't it, to get games called off. And the, the criteria for calling those games off have become very tangled and very confused and uh, it was becoming a bit anarchic. And I think they're, finally they've woken up to the fact they need to have a strict set of rules in place and, and, and start again with it. Looks like, I think it's five COVID cases and you're okay uh, to call it off. That's about fair, isn't it, Rich? I think I think so. I mean, if you're looking at the, you know, integrity of, of competition, then yeah, I do I do think that that's that's, that's fair. But I mean, as, as Paul said, you know, I think, you know, when teams are kind of you know trying to gain that yard or using using gamesmanship to, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, allegedly. It's it's difficult to to tell, but and as I said earlier, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a fan of of getting points on the board because there's no guarantee that you will recoup those points if you are missing 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 players. I mean, I know Leeds like to lead and West Ham got a lot of praise for fulfilling their fixtures, and I don't I don't think I don't think it was I don't think they needed that much praise. I think that you shouldn't get praised for something that which you should do. It's up to the other teams to to really try and fulfil that really, and it's up to them. As I said, there's no guarantee that they will. We recoup those points, so yeah. It's uh, I think I think you know, as you say, the rules that were there initially are, are fair, but you can see that they're being stretched to the limit now. So I think the a new rule change couldn't come sooner. Mm. You know, West Ham, and you know, let's let us not forget that David Moyes is back at Old Trafford on Saturday. Uh, you know, West Ham, a bit like Chelsea, are worn down by circumstance. It seems. How important will the international break be in restoring their focus and energy, Paul? Oh, it's it's going to be crucial because they're at the point. There's a crux here with them where they're either going to have a fantastic season and finish, you know, in the top European places, or they're going to, or they're going to subside back down towards mid-table. I don't think they will because I think the formula that he's got there, David Moyes, is is very very good. It's very effective. And, and he's got a very high number of his players, essentially, when they're fit and well, playing to a very high level. They're very difficult to play against as well, West Ham. They, they, they present you with problems that most of the kind of pure passing team don't always present you with. And I think it's, it's to his credit, really, that he's evolved as a manager. You know, he's, he's, he's kind of he moves, moved on in line with the way the Premier League football is now played but he's still deploying a few old weapons and a, a few old tactics to kind of to get the players to believe that they are potentially a, a top six club and I, I kind of uh, for his sake uh, as much as anything I hope that they're they're able to regroup and say okay let's plan for the last three months of the season and let's make sure we don't waste the good work we didn't did in the first half of the year first half of the season I should say. Mm. Yeah, another club who've you know, basically just gone on regardless. A Leeds, you know, Marcello Bielsa's philosophy probably is coming through there. Just throw a couple more kids in the mix. They've got Newcastle at home on Saturday. 
is that looking at this from a Newcastle perspective, Richard? Is that a game they can't afford to lose? Yeah, hundred percent. It's almost similar to to the Watford game last week. Really, these kind of six pointers are, are coming thick and fast. And I think they'd have been really disappointed to not get the three points last week. Um, you know, by all accounts, they they played quite well, but it was just that that concentration and that that bit of. Uh, quality at the back to, to see the game out they just just didn't have and you can see them getting unstuck but at Leeds I should say as you say Leeds seem to have been galvanised now obviously great win at West Ham of course last week and obviously it gives them a lot of confidence after a bit of a, a bit of patchy form so yes yeah, it's, it's a massive game I think every game now is, is massive for Newcastle especially with everything around them at the moment and, and then moving forward but with how tight it is down there, they just need to just pick up points because a couple of wins can see them dragged out of there. So it'll be a tough ask for them, but uh, they, they just can't afford to lose. They can't afford to lose many games now, to be fair. Mm, is reality biting there, Paul? Because when you think of it, they failed to get their two main centre-back targets. You know, they're talking about shipping in someone like Lingard, you know, who should really turn up on a lifeboat you know, for a six-month loan, what do you think will happen over the next 10 days or so? Do you think they'll start to shop like some sort of panic-stricken husband on Christmas Eve? <laughs> well, there must there, there will be that temptation because they didn't have a plan for this, did they? If When they sort of acquired the club by accident almost, as I said before in this programme, they it seems to me they, they, they their first thought was, right, what should we do now? The Newcastle stayed in the relegation zone. They ended up in this tran- January transfer window where it's always difficult, no matter how much money you've got, to buy players to do the job for you. And you don't want to be trying to buy celebrity players who don't want to come or players who will come and just use it as a six-month you know, kind of payday. So it is a very difficult thing to do. There's no question about that, no matter how rich you are. Chris Wood was a was a sign in many ways of how difficult it is because they spent twenty five million pounds on a player I think had scored three times you know, and so when the Saudis bought Newcastle I don't suppose their number one ambition was to weaken Burnley but that's the reality of the situation they're in, and yes there will be a temptation to as the window the closure of the window starts to approach to just throw money at it and say, well, you know, this is this is it. This is our only chance now to save this team from relegation. No matter what it costs, we have to do it. Are they rational enough to think, well, if we go down, we'll put another plan in place so that we come straight back up and this is a long-term thing. It's not about six months of panic and and, 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 a, and a kind of um, a dogfight to stay up. I doubt that, really. I suspect that they're, they're making decisions day to day and week to week, but... To answer your question, Mike, it wouldn't surprise me if there were two or three kind of short-term emergency big-name arrivals before the end of the month. Yeah. Well, today we've, we've dealt largely with the business side of the game rather than the sporting side. I'd just like to end with a reminder of the game's humanity. Uh, Christian Eriksen wants to return to the Premier League in order to give himself the best chance of playing for Denmark in this year's World Cup. He died for five minutes representing his country in last year's European Championships. The heroism of the team's medical staff was marked in this week's FIFA Awards. Now, a lot of clubs are understandably interested in him. Frankly, 
I don't care who he plays for. It will just be good to have him back. Do you agree? I hope so, regardless of which club you support. In the meantime, thanks to Paul and Richard for their insight. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.